Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nathan Sager. Nate, it's been a while. Yes, yes. Uh, one of us has aged terribly and it's not you. So <laughs> you're good there, Neil. You know what, Nate? The future is bright. Really bright. Blindingly bright. Shades just might not cut it. It's impossible not to look forward and see the emerging technology rapidly disrupting every sector under the sun. Of course, your perspective on all of this depends on what side of the disruption you are on. Nonetheless, I think it's going to be very interesting today to talk to a 90-year-old man who is very familiar to generations of hockey fans. Not because he's seen a thing or two, and he has, but because he's cut his teeth, or he cut his teeth at another time of great upheaval and change like now. Brian McFarlane joined Hockey Night in Canada in 1965. Nothing too crazy went on in the 60s, right, Nate? No, not that I know of. We weren't born yet, right? (laughs) At the time, the broadcast was still in black and white. Color was a year away, and expansion, which doubled the number of teams from 6 to 12, happened the season after that. How many times have we heard they were recycling coaches? The game has passed that man by. While McFarlane was saying the same thing, as were others, about a guy like Punch Imlach in the late 70s. So, it's happened before. McFarlane was the first Canadian announcer announcer to appear on an American hockey telecast on CBS in 1960. Later, he worked for NBC, where he became tied to Peter Puck, a cartoon that explained hockey to kids south of the border. He didn't invent the character, but he assisted in its creation and later bought the marketing rights. Here's a theme. He also approached a bunch of teenagers at the Toronto Pressman's Club to make the hit jingle, Clear the Track, Here Comes Shaq, a Canadian chart topper in the 60s. That song, and the player it's about, Eddie Shaq, is also the focus of a previous Sportslet episode with Ken Reed. Yeah, season three, episode five, I believe. You can find it on our website. You're absolutely right. Um, Sportslit.ca. Given the incredible focus today on entrepreneurship, it will be interesting to ask Brian McFarlane, about that spirit as much, you know, that spirit which led him to make lucrative deals from selling archived footage to creating an entire hockey museum. It'll be as interesting to talk to him about that as it will be about the 96 books he has written and his talented family, which includes, of course, Dad Leslie McFarlane, a.k.a. Franklin W. Dixon. Author of? The Hardy Boys series. There you go. And his sister, who's also an accomplished author, Nora Perez. Hey, you know what? This guy seems to have such a knack for business. If there's going to be a Peter Puck NFT, you might hear about it here first because I wouldn't put it past McFarlane to forego a good opportunity. It's appropriate that we welcome him to talk about his book, A Hell of a Life in Hockey, released on October 12th as the Hockey Hall of Fame inducts a new class on November 15th. McFarlane, who played college hockey at St. Lawrence University in the 50s, entered as a media member, receiving the Foster Hewitt Award in 1995, just four four years after his decades-long tenure at Hockey Night in Canada ended. Before I hand it off, Nate, again, I just want to mention sportslit.ca, our website where you can listen to every episode. And you, you can also buy all the books we've covered so far, uh, including this one. So head there, and uh, Nate, I also heard we have a Twitter account. Yeah, at Sportslit Pod, just like it sounds. <laughs> and a Facebook page. And the Talk About, talk about Sportslit Podcast. There you go. Where we post, post links to the episodes and maybe just talk about sports writerly things. 
I guess this is my turn to go now. We're, we're rusty. Uh, yeah, I, I guess to properly capture the spirit of the thing, let's uh, rattle off some Brian McFarland numbers, right? Like like off the back of the hockey card, uh, his life box, uh, to borrow a phrase from the late, great Paul Quarrington. Uh, so as Neil mentioned, he's had 90 trips around the sun. He was born the same year as Jean Beliveau and actually played against him in the Memorial Cup playdowns back in 1951 with the Inkerman Rockets. <laughs> uh, yeah, Brian's uh, nearly 100 titles have sold probably a million, million and a half copies. He had a 28-year association with Hockey Night in Canada, and although he doesn't connect these dots in the book, I did note that his tenure on Hockey Night outlived Harold Ballard by a year. Ballard, of course, was the chairman of the Carlton Street Cash Box, a.k.a. Maple Leaf Gardens, where McFarland was banned from the gondola for having the temerity to stick up for Leafs captain Daryl Sittler instead of being a, a management toady. Uh, now, of course, in his playing days, one club where McFarland was in, he, he founded the Century Club with the Skating Saints of St. Lawrence University in upstate New York. He was the first player in that program's history to score 100 goals, and that's one club he's in by himself since it's been 70, 65 years since. No, one, no one's uh, matched that record. One guy in the 90s stalled at 99. You could look it up. His name is actually Burke Murphy, and he's not related to Brian Burke in that they spell and pronounce their last names differently. Brian Burke, the subject of another sports Yeah, we had podcast. Brian last year. Uh, so those are the counting stats. There's no accounting for how many Canadians our age and up were influenced by McFarland's uh, love of hockey storytelling, the way he could associate the game at present with the, with its uh, past. In, you know, even uh, last year, uh, you know, I, th- you know, had when you just had, when you just had your entertainment for, for company. One of his books, Golden Oldies. I was, you know, spent some time with that one. A lot of a lot of fun hockey stories. Uh, thanks for my friend Dan Nolan for bequeathing me that when he was tidying up his desk one day. Uh, and also, I mean, if we talk about that Scotiabank Hockey College that he had in the 70s and 80s, I, I took note that at its peak, 40% of the membership was was young was girls, at a time when youth hockey participation in Canada was probably three percent female or less. Uh, Another one of his business ventures. Yeah, and that was you know that was at a time when you know Justine Blaney. Remember we brought this up in the Sammy Joe Small episode was you know going to the Ontario Human Rights Commission for the right to play on a boys rep team, and yet he was introduced so many girls and women to the game, and they probably had daughters who went on to play. So you know Hockey Canada maybe should be thanking him for that, <laughs> Increase, increasing their potential participation by more than fifty percent, and also something else we want to ask Brian McFarland about too is he's become a painter during his uh semi-retirement uh you know there might be a life lesson there you know ask about how his you know foray into art has kept his mind sharp you know and uh pried open some neural pathways because that's what you need to do uh, as you you age you got to try some new new things you don't get you know a hardening of the of the (laughs) pathways in the in your uh, mind but anyways we're grateful he can join us and grateful we can be here and be back recording Yes, indeed. Without further ado, Brian McFarlane. And we are back on SportsLit and very happy to have Mr. Brian McFarlane on the phone with us. Mr. McFarlane, where are you today? I'm in beautiful downtown Stouffville, Ontario. Ah. Uh, about 30 minutes north of the city of Toronto. So you're not in, in Florida, because there was a lot of Florida, and I think it's Naples uh, was mentioned a lot in this book. 
Well, we, normally we get down to Naples every year for about 20 years, and uh, we miss it. But uh, with the pandemic and uh, changing times and insurance costs and all the rest of it, we decided to sell our place down there and stay in Canada over the winter. And uh, I, we don't we don't have any problem with that at all. <laughs> Although I do miss my old hockey buddies down there because until I was 84, I was playing three times a week with the old timers up in Fort Myers, Florida. Donnie Orry, the former Boston Bruin, played with us, and Steve Jensen, who played with Minnesota played with us and a bunch of old crocs uh, i was the oldest at 84 and the rest are are um, just uh, old-timer hockey players good bunch of guys you you also played i mean that's the one of the first parts of the book is when you talk about your you're playing in the, in that league there in the beer league uh you also had a uh, one of the owners of a, an ohl franchise that uh made the news a little while ago too right Oh yeah, he uh, he had a son playing uh, a teenage son down there in Florida, and he wanted him to be an NHL star. So he he uh, ended up giving him uh, tutelage from one of the pro players with the Florida Everblades. And when he felt he was ready, he went up to Flint, Michigan, and paid a lot of money for a junior A franchise. And he went up there and, and started to run the club, but he ran into all kinds of problems. Uh, he fired his coaching staff, and the players went out in kind of a mutiny. And his son was one of the players. He turned in his uniform with all the other guys. And the <laughs> league went after the owner and um, forced him to make changes and uh, find him, I, I think, 250000 bucks or something. Uh, that was a great investment in trying to get your son into the <laughs> NHL. Uh, it's never going to happen now because this was years ago, and I think the last I heard the son was playing over in in Norway or Sweden or somewhere overseas. And we haven't heard from our pal yet who uh, who played with us and then um, got involved with his son in that enterprise, which which turned out badly. Well, you know, I know Nate uh, covered the OHL, my co-host here, extensively. So Nate uh, followed that story, and I'm sure you'd want to chime in quickly before I get into the first real question we have for you. Yeah, just uh, the principles of that. And it was in 2015. Rolf Nielsen bought the he bought the Plymouth Whalers franchise from Peter Carmanos, moved it to yes, moved Rolf, it to Flint, Rolf and Nielsen it, and his son Hawken. Yeah, Hawken. <laughs> Yeah. He uh, in our old timers game one day he showed up with a bunch of traffic cones and he put them around the ice and said, "Guys, we got to practice our fundamentals." These are guys sixty and seventy years old, and he wants them to go around the pylons. And we we use some rather foul language telling him what he could do with those cones. <laughs> I bet, I bet, I bet. <laughs> well. You know, I want to I want to ask you about uh, Michael Holmes and how who was he and how did he convince you to to, to write this? I think that you, is it your ninety sixth or ninety seventh book. Yeah, I've kind of lost count. Uh, and then when you write books and you update them, like my first book, Fifty Years of Hockey, became sixty years and then a hundred years. I don't know whether to count that as three editions <laughs> or three books and. And uh, so uh, I'll let some other guy with better information than I have to do the count. But I, I hear that we're we're getting close to the hundred mark. So, so who who is Michael Holmes then? And and oh, Michael Holmes is a, a big shot at ECW uh, Publishing. Uh, they were my very first publishers. Would you believe? 
back in 1965, uh, I did a book. I went to King Clancy, the Leaf uh, vice president and charge of nonsense, and uh, asked him if he'd like to do a book. And he said he, he didn't care much. He didn't care if he earned any money from a book. Nobody was going to read the book. And if I was foolish enough to think there was merit in it, then he would cooperate. So that's the way we started. And uh, he was a delightful guest. Uh, his, his stories were humorous and interesting and, uh, and historically significant. So all the tapes I did, I sent to the National Archives. And uh, the book didn't sell that well, as he predicted. But I had a joy just taking four years out of his life and mine to do it. And, uh, and here I am all these years later now doing another book with ECW for Michael Holmes. He's a fine guy, and he really knows publishing, so I'm happy to be with him. It did take him two or three years to get this book done, but that's okay. We've, we've got lots of time left. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, I don't like to throw myself and, and personal stories into every interview, but I tend to do that. And I, my one of the first Leaf games I ever remember watching was a Saturday night after King Clancy had died, and it was a just a brawl, basic, basically between the Red Wings and the Maple Leafs. I'm wondering if, you know, in your extensive time with Hockey Night in Canada, if you remember, if that game stands out to you. If I remember, the, 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 what was the last part of your question? Well, if you remember, if that stands out to you, that, that, that game after King Clancy had passed and the oh, Leafs played the Red what, Wings. What, um, what stood out for me was the, uh, the funeral of Clancy mm. and how I was in charge or, or I was uh, doing some work for Hockey Night in Canada alongside the color commentary, uh, producing some of the intermission features. And that was one that really was effective, Clancy's funeral. And I believe it was on that game. And I know that Don Cherry called me right afterwards and he said, that was a great piece of work. He said, you had me crying throughout. Well, the, the Clancy's funeral, I think, would have had everybody crying. And the the big salute that Harold Ballard gave him when he got out of the limo, when the, 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 the hearse was there in the limo, and the, the Monsignor who delivered the eulogy, uh, everything fit together for that eulogy and that uh, little documentary on King's demise. I was quite proud of that. Now, King was an Ottawa guy, and 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 uh, so are you. Grow, growing up, growing up there, uh, what was what was it maybe about li- living in a town that was part of the early NHL and then wasn't part of it for decades that maybe piqued your interest in hockey history when you were young, Brian? Okay, I'm I'm having a little difficulty hearing you, but you you mentioned hockey and the history and Clancy, and, and Ottawa, as yeah. we're talking, I'm thinking of Clancy playing every position in an NHL playoff game, including goaltender. I mean, he was the defense money play against Edmonton out in Vancouver in a Stanley Cup playoff. He uh, There were a lot of injuries on the Ottawa Senators, so he played uh, all three forward positions, both defense positions. And in those days when the goalie got a penalty, as his team did, he had to go sit in the penalty box. So... He handed his stick to young Clancy and said, look, kid, you look after this place. I'll be right back. And so Clancy played goal for a couple of minutes. He, I don't think he had a shot against him. But later, 
reports indicate, well, they took some uh, liberties, I guess, with the story and said he stopped a couple of breakaways and he was really a good goalie. Well, he said, I didn't, even, I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> That's one story from Clancy. Yeah, and, and looking back, what does it mean that you broke in as a color commentator on Hockey Night in Canada without having that background as a former player? Because that was kind of unusual in that era. Yeah, I uh, I always felt sensitive about that because um, guys like Howie Meeker and Gary Dornhofer were always joining us as color commentators or analysts, and I felt a little sensitive that I'd never played pro and I might not be taken too seriously. Um, but um, in, in those days, broadcasting was a little different. When I came along in 65, there were a lot of do's and don'ts, I recall. Don't talk about the fights. That was a very sensitive area. Um, don't get Mr. Ballard mad because he tends to get annoyed when people say anything negative about his hockey team. Well, it's hard to do a, an NHL game without <laughs> without being a little critical. of If you can't get the puck out of your own zone, you're going to be you're going to be dismissed as an expert if you don't mention it. And uh, I was constantly annoying Ballard with some of my comments, and uh, but we worked it. We worked it out pretty well until uh, till the Sittler case came along many years later, and I defended Sittler in his dispute. The dispute was mainly with Punch Imlach, not Ballard. But um, when Sittler didn't show up for a game, he was going through some personal problems, and his doctor advised him to just take a break so he did and i defended him and that was the end of my career pretty much with the toronto maple leafs uh after uh 17 20 years i uh i was told i was no longer welcome and that i have to be going to winnipeg to do the new jets games and then four years in montreal with montreal canadians that wasn't too bad a deal um, so somehow I survived for 25 years and then was told that was it, so I, I left. Mr. McFarland, you worked extensively in Canada, obviously with Hockey Night in Canada and other networks, uh, but you also worked in the U.S., and I wanted to know, what was the difference? I've heard you were very fond of working uh, for the American productions. Is it because yes. they pushed boundaries? What was the difference between Canada and the U.S. in TV production? Well, first I worked with CBS. I was the first Canadian, I guess, to work on uh, U.S. networks and hockey. And that was because I could skate. Back then I was just out of college. And uh, they wanted somebody to put on skates during the intermissions and interview, well, in those days, Gordie Howe, Ted Lindsay, um, Bobby Hall. Excuse me. <laughs> um, so I did that for, I think, just one season. And then in the 70s, uh, NBC came along, and uh, we formed a, a bond that was lifelong, and, and I treasure it to this day. The crew was so receptive to doing NHL games. I worked with uh, uh, Tim Ryan as the play-by-play -play announcer, and Ted Lindsay uh, became a very close friend and a lifetime friend, and I ended up admiring him so much despite his his reputation as a real tough cookie. Uh, he was a gentleman. Every every weekend we would bring our skates and form an NBC team to play a team from the media in Philadelphia or Boston or wherever. 
Uh, we we uh, went to dinner together. We corresponded during the week. Um, my boss, for example, said, if you ever need a place uh, to, to, to go on a vacation, you can have my condo um, in uh, South Carolina. Uh, there was a new car for us every year from Chrysler. None of these things ever happened with Hockey Night in Canada. Um, and it wasn't a salary difference. It was just the reception we got and the respect we were honored. Um, I found in my case with, with Hockey Night, I was always on my guard uh, being warned not to do this or not to do that. And um, it, it was just a little more difficult to work um, here. Um, so there was quite a change. It was an attitude change more than anything. And we work for a, a, an advertising company. You know, a lot of people think the CBC hired us. Well, McLaren Advertising owned the rights to hockey, and they would call us in and hire us and fire us and warn us and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I was felt I was pretty lucky to survive those years without getting fired more often. <laughs> and I kind of smile as I'm saying this. Yeah, and one, one story from that period, and I apologize, I don't recall which network you would have been with at the time, but you went on the ice to do an interview after a brawl. People might be interested to hear that story. Oh, yeah, I was ready to uh, for the intermission to interview one of the guys coming off the ice, and Barry Ashby of the Flyers... Uh, took a shot to the face, and he he never played another game. He went down, and there was blood, and the gates opened, and the stretcher is coming out. And I had a, a hand mic in my hand, so the, when the gates opened, I stepped out on the ice. And Brad Park looked me over, and he said, you're not supposed to be out here. I said, I know, Brad, but I'm not stopping now. And I went right out to Matt Pavlich. It's the only time this has ever happened in a Stanley Cup playoff game where the announcer goes right out on the ice and gets an interview. And um, I read in the paper the next day, McFarland told to stay off the ice. Well, nobody had even spoken to me, but I did run into Clarence Campbell, the league president, the following weekend in New York. And he walked by me and I said, hello, Mr. Campbell. Hello, Brian. He walked about 10 paces and he said, oh, Brian. Yes, sir. Stay off the ice, yes, sir. And that was the only, the only after uh, response that I got from Mr. Campbell. Yeah, and one one uh, boundary you encountered in Canada that involved a story lead, you know, your friend Carl Brewer, and the NHL players' pension money. Uh, uh, that became a major hockey story in the early '90s. Uh, knowing how how much you knew about it, uh, how was that tough to revisit for this book? That that sort of saga. Yes. Uh, again, I have a hearing disability. It's not your fault, but I, I believe you're talking about the story that the the best story I ever got never got to air. Yes. Perhaps. Yes. Exactly. Well, uh, with Carl, Carl Brewer. Carl Brewer and I were good friends. We played old timers hockey Sunday mornings, and he said, "Be at this hotel seven o'clock tomorrow night, and you're going to get a story." Well, I showed up, but there was no other media guy in the room. And I had my tape recorder, and I said to Carl, can I tape this? And he said, sure. Well, that was the night they went after the NHL for $40 million um, in in past revenues that they felt were owed, owed to the Players Association. And 
And I had all this on tape. I had Carl talking, the lawyer talking, and I thought I had a really hot story for Saturday night. And they were paying us $1,000 a game to produce these Saturday night intermissions. So I thought I had the best one of the season. And I called my boss, and I told him what has happened, and I had it on tape. All we needed was to get Al Eagleson's voice on tape, denying everything or rebutting anything that we might say, or Carl had said. Well, he said, don't go to, uh, I was supposed to go to Saskatchewan or something that weekend to do a junior hockey thing. And he said, don't go to Saskatchewan. We'll, we'll, we'll have a meeting about your story and let you know. So I sat back for two days. Ron McLean went to Saskatchewan and earned the thousand bucks that I would have got for going there. And I phoned on a Thursday. It's getting close to Saturday. What are you going to do, guys? And they said, no, 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 we've talked about it. The story's too hot to handle. We're not going to go with it. And they lost a good story, and I lost my best story of the year because I thought it was pretty gutless. But then I thought in retrospect, no, they've got their jobs and families to think about. They don't want to get fired for using something that the league itself might find incendiary. So that was one thing. But in the book, I noticed the editor cut the last part of that story off. He didn't have me calling my boss. He didn't have me upset that uh, I'd lost the, not the money so much, but the story. And uh, I said, gee, I, I missed that when I was editing the book afterward. I said, I should have told him to put that few paragraphs back in. But that's publishing. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, because you really – I mean, that ties into the, the, I guess, broadcasting and journalism seem to be hand in hand, but they're really not, right? I mean, we've seen that with what's going on with Rick Westhead right now, right? I mean, did you feel that there was a reluctance to allow real journalism into a broadcast uh, because of, you know, oversight from whether it's the advertisers or the league? Yeah, I think so. I think there was sensitivity all the way around about not rocking the boat or not getting John Ziegler, the league president, angry about something that reflected badly on the league or half badly. Then you had the Leafs themselves with Ballard listening or having people listen for him and then tell him. And Punch Imlach was very sensitive. Um, I always figured Dodo Imlach, his wife, was listening intently to everything we said on the air and would tell Punch what he got back from the game that night, what was said or not said, or what what might have been critical of his moves on the ice and that sort of thing. So we had to tread a, a pretty thin line. And I think the same held true in Montreal with the Canadians. Um, you had situations there that I think they had to be on their, on their French and English telecasts uh, a little sensitive to not not um, getting too many of the top people upset with your conver- conversations. Nate just mentioned uh, Carl Brewer, and we talked about the story that was broke broken by or, or attempted to be broken by you. I want to ask you specifically about Carl Brewer. You actually do mention, you know, because everyone knows the story that Carl Brewer spent his last night, I believe, he was supposed to go up with you to your cottage or something like that. I want uh, you mentioned in the book that he died in his sleep. Could you tell us about your friendship with Carl Brewer and and what a unique person he was and player he was at that time? 
Yes, at that time, he he was the only NHL player I ever had in my kitchen, sitting around my kitchen table. Um, for some reason, Carl and I bonded, and uh, I guess I was flattered when he said I was doing a good job or something on hockey, and, and we got to be close. And then when we played together, uh, for instance, he told me in the dressing room one summer uh, at the rink we were using, you know, I'm going to St. Louis tomorrow. I said, what? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sign with the Blues. And he told me the whole story, and I, I said, gee, I don't even have work for a radio station anymore. I have a great story here, but I, I sat on it because he didn't tell me not to or two, but uh, I said, I wish I had a late sportscast this night on CFRB like I used to, and I'd have the best story of the day, but... Uh, that was the kind of relationship we had, and, and that's why he invited me to the room that night. But then I wrote a book about something I can't remember, and I said, Carl, would you mind reading this over for me and giving me an opinion? And when I showed up at home on Friday afternoon getting ready to go to the country place we own, uh, he was sitting at the table and, and uh, with my wife and talking, and we got embroiled in a long conversation about oh, um, death and life and how to live your life and his father dying young. And and then it began to get late and we were going to get stuck in traffic and all this. So I said, he said, I better go. I'll leave your manuscript. It's good and that sort of thing. I said, no, no, no. This is such a great conversation. And we carried on till about eight or nine o'clock at night. We skipped our plans to go to the country. He went home, and at 7 a.m., uh, his partner, Sue, called to say Carl died in the night, Brian. He was uh, he had sleep apnea, and he was wearing a device. We woke up at 3 o'clock and had some tea, and he said, I'm not going to put that device over my face again. So I let him sleep in, and when I got a little concerned, it was late morning, I went up and uh, found him. He wasn't breathing and I said, "Oh my God, what a what a what a weekend that turned out to be." What what made him so unique as a person? I mean, it was separated him from so many hockey players at that time. To you, well, he could he could see through the nonsense of some of the Imlac um, dictums. He didn't like very much, and he didn't think they were. He thought they were a little foolish. Perhaps you must do this, you must do that, um, and so he. He took his own path through life, and he was a sensitive, intelligent guy, and he thought some of the foolishness in the game itself could be dealt with. And uh, and in time, with the Players Association, he's the only one that stepped up and invested, let's say, 100000 bucks in legal fees just trying to straighten out the situation with the uh, union and the league itself. And he was willing to do battle and sue his partner who took down all the notes. And the, there was a lot of research went into that. And he talked with other people and said, but there were some people called him foolish to even attack the league or think he could succeed. But he did succeed in the final analysis. And uh, I was um, I was quite a fan of Carl Brewer. I admired him, but I know a lot of people uh, found him a lot of uh, rather difficult to deal with. I want to I want to ask you um, uh, go back to going back to Hockey Night in Canada. I want to ask you. Um, there's been a lot of upheaval at Hockey Night in Canada in recent years. 
Um, and I want to ask you, what, pe- what can people take from your book regarding the volatility of what happens behind the scenes in this competitive industry and in this show? Well, I think I think it's probably changed so much now that uh, we're no there's no longer an advertising uh, agency with bean counters calling the shots. Um, there are pretty professional people coming along all the time. The young guys coming out of uh, broadcast journalism courses and that sort of thing. We had some real hotshot young guys. Doug Beforth comes to mind. John Shannon. Rick Briggs Jude, um, you could tell they were going to cut quite a, a, a career for themselves in the, in the background with Hockey Night in Canada, and I'm sure a lot of them have matured there and done very well. I'm not familiar with any of them. I never go back to a, I'm never invited back to a game or a, a broadcast uh, studio anymore. Um, it's been a kind of a real disassociation. Which which happens, and I'm not bitching about it, but it it happens. Um, I I would tell people I've always felt this way about broadcasting, and it started maybe with Ward Cornell when I I lost out an audition to Ward Cornell early in my career. That didn't bother me as much as the fact that Ward Cornell, to my opinion, was not a hockey guy. And the hockey guy is a phrase I'm using in a, in a new book I'm writing, because if you're not a hockey guy, you shouldn't be on Hockey Night in Canada. I mean, if you don't have a passion for the game, now Ron McLean has that, Cherry has it, Dave Hodge had it, I had it, I'm not so sure Bill Hewitt had it, and I don't think Ward Cornell had it, and there are other people uh, Trombolopoulos, I'm not sure, had it. I never got to meet him, or, or, or he wasn't very around very long. But it, you just have to have a passion for the game. If if you're a ball player and you you, you don't have a passion for playing baseball, then I don't think you, you're going to make the any of the the major league teams. But you might. Right. <laughs> so that's really what it comes down to with me. You've got to have a passion for what you do in life. Ward Cornell, of course, was uh, the host of Hockey Night in Canada many years ago. Um, uh, yeah, so so there so I guess there's always been a kind of an upheaval and a, and um, a lot going on behind the scenes. Um, there's a time now. I mean, one of the main things people talked about heading into the last few seasons is letting the hockey players kind of show themselves a little more, and they need to get rid of the dress code. And I thought, you know. Brian McFarlane was around at a time when, you know, people went from, you know, buzz cuts to long hair and sideburns. So it seems part and parcel of the same thing. Did you, what was the reaction like when people, when some of those hockey players started kind of, kind of bucking the the trend and, and, and adopting means those styles that were around at the time, did people get upset about it? Do you remember that? Oh, I don't remember too much about that. I, I think people, uh, uh, <laughs> can kind of accept what they see on TV and uh, the styles change and uh, the people change. Um, I don't study it like I used to, um, but Jennifer Botterill, for example, we we tried a a lady broadcaster, uh, Helen Hutchison, way back in the 60s, and she was the first 
female broadcaster, but she had to get up at four in the morning to do a morning show on television, so she wouldn't be able to stay for the game and comment after the game. She she did a little thing at the opening or an interview with one of the players, and and then disappeared. So she wasn't really bonding with the crew or being one of us. So that was short-lived. But I, I see girls like Cassie and Jennifer on there now, and there was another one that caught my eye the other night. I thought she was really good, but I, I didn't quite get her name. Oh, I know what I said to my wife. I said, the cameraman focuses on the guys a close-up. But there's this lovely young woman saying sensible things off to the left, and she's in the distance. It's almost as though they said, well, let's ignore her and just go with the headshots of the guys that are talking. And I'm thinking, I'm not a producer, director, so it's none of my business. But I, I did think her family would be watching at home saying, oh, dear, we expected a better close-up of her, our daughter or, or cousin or whatever, than we got. And um, I'm, I'm so pleased that some of the girls are doing so well in broadcasting because I've always um, supported females in hockey. Um, I've, I did a book, Proud Past, Bright Future, about the history of females in hockey, and I, I really enjoyed the research on that. Some of the girls told great stories. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the goalies said, when I was playing goal, uh, I had to wear a long skirt on the ice. So I put buckshot in the hem of my skirt, a lot of buckshot, so it would cling to the ice and the other girls couldn't put the puck by me. There were stories like that that just come to mind now. Um, so female hockey is big in, 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 in my uh, existence, and uh, I support it fully. Yeah, when when did you dig up that the there was a female goaltender who wore a mask in a game before it was ever done in the NHL by Clint Benedict? Uh, yes, her name was Graham, uh, a Queen's University student who probably had lovely teeth and a straight nose, and she wanted to keep those that way. So she wore a fencing mask, and uh, it may not have been the first mask worn by a goaltender in all of hockey because since then I've researched, and I think there was a goalie in Winnipeg wore an iron mask back at the turn of the century. But um, she got credit in, in my book as being probably the first mask wearer in, um, in all of hockey. But statistics change and the history of the game changes, and there are so many great researchers now out there digging deeper than ever before. Just, I'm talking far too long, I should let you in here, but just yesterday somebody sent me a book in the mail, and it's all about the history of the California leagues back in the 20s and the 30s. And somebody, I don't know the man's name, but never heard of him, but he did a wonderful job of researching all this history of teams in Oakland and the, the Hollywood stars. And, you know, Bill Barocco came out of that league to, to score a Stanley Cup winning goal for the Leafs. Then, uh, not too long ago, I found out, get this, how about hockey in Cuba? <laughs> um, back in the 30s, a former speed skating champ and hockey player from Winnipeg went down to Florida and he formed um, a league. I've forgotten the name of the league now, but all the teams were in South Florida except Havana. 
and they had the Havana Cuban team in there. Nobody played hockey in Cuba, but they had Canadians on the team and a couple of Americans, and that filled out their league. So uh, I, I was kind of thrilled when I found out that C Havana Cuba once had a professional hockey league team. <laughs> and, and swinging around to the you know the surge in female hockey, uh, when when you had the Scotiabank Hockey co College, uh, how much did that do to stimulate interest among uh, girls? Uh, I think it, at a time when you know not many were playing the game. Oh, gee, I don't know. That's going back a long way. Scotiabank Hockey College. Um, you know, I should. I don't even have that on my bio, and yet when I look back and I. I I, again, this could be a long story, but I'll shorten it as fast as I can. No, no, we, we got time. Please tell well, the well, Hockey Night in Canada was looking for something for their intermission. I was unhappy working at CFTO, so I was ripe for a conversation about how to improve the intermissions, and I talked to one of their executives at lunch, and I said, you should have a little hockey college for kids every time they stop at the Esso gas station to fill it. And we were talking then, five when they fill up with 5 or $10 worth of gas, uh, they'll get something for their kid, how to play center ice by Dave Keon or Tim Horton on defense, that sort of thing. And he liked the idea, and he took it to McLaren Advertising, and they liked the idea, so they hired me and paid me three times what I was making in broadcasting to come in and be the dean of the Scotiabank, not the Scotiabank then, the Esso National Hockey College. Well, they sat on it for two years, and the Tiger in the Tank campaign, you may remember, was going well, so they decided to postpone any introduction of this hockey college. Well, by then I knew that McLaren Advertising had other clients like Scotiabank, so I walked down the street one day and walked into Scotiabank, and I sold them on starting the Scotiabank Hockey College. By coincidence, and coincidence is very <laughs> helpful in life sometimes, the man I met was Neil Speaker, and he was our bank manager in Halebury, Ontario, when my dad was living there. So he and my dad were friends, and he welcomed me. He liked the idea. He budgeted 100000 bucks for it, and we started it, and I was there for the next 17 years, and we attracted hundreds of well, thousands of young kids to the bank because they'd get a little magazine each month and they had a lucky draw for a, a chance to win a trip to a Stanley Cup game, that sort of thing. And we tried to give them lessons in life. I did a column, Stick Handling Through Life. We gave them a centerfold of an NHL hockey star, which they could pin up in their room. And thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars poured in from these uh, kids as they grew to maturity and uh, got jobs. And I'm sure some of them still are with Scotiabank. I'm sure of that. So anyway, that lasted 17 years. But I, I, I had a little trouble there because I'd get marketing guys come in and say, why are we spending all this money on hockey? It should be a soccer college. I'm from Ireland and we play soccer over there. Or it should be just about money matters. We want to teach these kids all about savings and money and, and all of this. So once you took hockey out of it, there was a big loss of interest. And uh, it gradually, I, I don't think they still have that. But the, uh, I was advised that Scotiabank never had any interest in hockey and they would never put up any money for a college. 
Well, look at the money they've spent since then, multi-millions of dollars on the naming rights to the arena alone. So um, I'm kind of proud of that. You know, at least I proved the guy that said Scotiabank has no interest in hockey was wrong. Yeah. Um, One of your many business uh, ventures, which I'm going to ask you about shortly, I just want to switch gears back to broadcasting uh, before we move on to that part of the interview. And... um, I've always thought it would be good for uh, any you know long-standing broadcast, whether it be Monday Night Football or Hockey Night in Canada, to have a broadcaster emeritus, like a like a, a distinguished professor who is now retired. Do you do you think that would uh, be a, a good addition to some of these broadcasts to have somebody that's been around as long as you have? Well, it it wouldn't necessarily be me, but I I, I like your idea. I like anybody that has input uh, that is willing to say why don't we try this uh, why don't we try that and uh, Eddie Shack uh, when he when he came out with that clear the track here comes Shack I jumped on that and said why don't we get a little song going and I wrote the words to a song I'm not a musician but my brother-in-law was and he wrote the music and we recorded it and and we were going to have all the musicians on the ice wearing 23 and here clear the track here comes Shaq he knocks them down he gives them a whack um, but my boss said no 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 we don't want you making um, any royalties on a record we're, we'll play the song gently in the background but you're not to take any credit and we certainly don't want to make any money off this so I said, I guess, something, well, what if one of the guys on NFL football came up with a song for the? They'd jump all over it and say, hey, look what Joe here has written this week, and, and they'd make a big thing of it. I said, here in Canada, we're not going to do that, and I should have known any better. And, of course, as, and then I had to stand for Shaq harassing me for the next 20 years saying, where's my money? I never got any royalties for the song. And I said, neither did I, Eddie. And I, I'd give him a dollar bill at a banquet or something to prove that I, he, he did get paid a dollar. Um, but um, he, he, he upset me to the point harassing me and calling for royalties that I... I told him face to face over um, the, <laughs> in the, uh, in the airport. Vancouver airport what I thought of him and his actions, and that's that kept him quiet for a while. Then he mellowed, and we got to be buddies. Sort of, he walked into my house one day without me even knowing it, and said, what are you doing in here? And he came down to my basement, and we had a good chat. But that's Shaq for you. He'll do things. Like, he would do things like that. I miss him, frankly. Uh, he was a nemesis for a long time, but uh, as I say, we mellowed. Spe- speaking of, um, I guess, tying in broadcasting and business ventures, um, we spoke uh, last season on our podcast with Paul Romanuk, uh, who was a runner while you were working at Hockey Night in Canada. And I wanted to ask you, what made you bring him along to your meeting with Scholastic that has led to 30-plus years of hockey superstars, which was initially your pet project? Uh, I'm, I'm laughing because Paul was a young guy with ambition, and I'm a sucker for young guys with ambition. So uh, I took a shine to him and uh, and to others, and uh, I didn't have any clue that this would lead to something important in his life. I just said, if you want to come along, um, I, I took a young artist from Montreal for my Scotiabank thing, and he did caricatures of uh, Fred Shiro and... Dave Schultz and others, 
and I could pay him maybe five bucks for the things, and he loved doing it. And uh, I took him to a Stanley Cup game in Philadelphia once. He was about 12 years old. And I got in touch with him about six years ago, and he's in New York working for one of the big magazines, and he's a well-known artist, and he's in, he's done really well. Barry Blitt was his name. And and the same with Paul Romanuk and others. Um, it's just like if you see young, if you see some potential in young people, why not help them get it out there and get it in front of people? I have a great grandson. He showed me his art book the other day, and it's family, so I'm prejudiced. But I said, Nathan, that is really good art, and I'm into art myself a lot now. So I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Or I'd like to see him emerge as a as an artist someday. But he will go his own way, whatever it is. And maybe he'll come back to art later like I did in life. Um, but young people have lots to offer. And uh, whether it's a, a young kid, 16-year-old, who's, who's plowing through the OHA or on his way to a college All-American season, uh, you never know. It's nice to see them come along and do well, though. Yeah, now, a lot of people have creativity, but it always takes something to unlock it and when it came to your father what kind of gifts did he have that and how did the creatives in your family like yourself and your sister uh learn from his example well you're talking about leslie mcfarlane who was the original author of the hardy boys books he um, he used to tell me don't tell your friends i'm writing that nonsense because he took any didn't take any pride in it but he got i said dad Later in life, I said, Dad, you got millions of kids hooked on reading through those Hardy Boys books, which you call garbage. Uh, they're not garbage. They got people started in reading, and they graduated the better stuff, sure. Um, but I just found out a, a researcher in uh, Welland, Ontario, sent me some stuff the other day. And there, my dad was working on the Welland paper back in when he was 17 years old. And he was doing the cartoons for the front front page. Now, I'm 90 years old, and I do not know that my dad was a cartoonist for anybody. I remember him doodling at the kitchen table with faces and this and that. So I, I knew he had some skill as an artist. But I could hardly believe this man when he said, oh, yeah, this was on the front page of the Welland Gazette in 1927. <laughs> and he sent me copies, and I'm, I sent them to my sister. And, and it, it's sort of a chapter in his life neither one of us knew about. And so he had a lot of skills. He was a very shy, quiet, short man. Um, and you wouldn't expect all of this creative creativity coming out of his brain, but he went to the National Film Board and made movies and was one of them was nominated for an Oscar. He went to Hollywood late in life and wrote for Bonanza because Lauren Green and he had worked here in, in film in the National Film Board. Um, he, he, I'm very proud of him. He uh, left a great legacy. But not not as great as Dickens or some of those <laughs> famous art famous writers. But I've collected a lot of his stuff uh, in the files at McLean's, for example, and on the internet. 
you can find lots of stuff about Leslie McFarlane. Uh, so I'm trying to preserve a lot of that stuff for, for Nathan and the great-grandchildren that are probably going to be interested someday. Yeah, sm- uh, small world, by the way. Lauren Green was on the campus radio station once where Neil and I met. Uh, now, your sister, uh, Nora Perez, uh, what, what should people know about her, her as a writer if they're, if they're not familiar? Uh, my sister, Nora. Yeah. Yes, uh, we're we're, uh, we're constantly in touch uh, almost three or four times a week. We're emailing her, phoning back and forth. Um, I'm very proud of her, too. She started at an early age, as my dad did, below the age of 10, to write things and put notes down, and she would write a little poem, and my dad would send it off, and she'd get $2 or $5 from some magazine. And then at age 15, she entered a a national international short story contest and won first prize five hundred dollars and she was an ottawa high school student then and she graduated to writing novels and she's just finished a memoir about the mcfarland family when the bow breaks it's really good um a, a publisher in the main boston area is coming out with my dad's uh, autobiography the ghost of the hardy boys uh, next year, we've uh, been in touch with them and helped them along. Um, so uh, I never get a big head about my stuff because I look at my family, my dad, my sister, my daughter's a really good playwright. So I'm, I say I'm the fourth best writer in my own family. So I won't get a swollen head if anybody says I've been doing well <laughs> with my writing. A very talented family indeed. Did the fact that your dad, that he didn't get royalties from the Hardy Boys have an impact on how you became an entrepreneur? Did you see that he wasn't making money off of this thing and that you wanted to? Because we just, we've named some of the ventures you've been in, um, but there's so many more, even, you know, selling footage that Harold Ballard was going to throw out that you took. Uh, Yeah, I'm almost embarrassed to tell that story, but uh, money... um, I don't know about my dad. He, we never owned a car, never owned a house, and I, I felt that he was cheated. Not cheated so much, but they didn't give royalties. He knew what the deal was, and he agreed to do it. So he said, I would never go after the publisher for royalties because I told him I would do the book for a hundred bucks, and and he didn't offer any royalties. Well. It wouldn't have. He would have an agent today, and and there would be um, different people that would support my dad, and groups he would belong to that would, you know, associations for writers and that sort of thing. There'd be a lot more protection today. Money never meant much to me. Uh, at least I say that. But of course, money has to mean much to everybody. Um, but I would just turn it over to my wife, and, and if, if it's a royalty check or a an advance on a book i would barely look at it i didn't i'd know what the agreement was and i'd say you do what you want you look after the finances and and she's done a marvelous job over the years and um, i wouldn't be able to have a country place i guess if i didn't have her looking after things so your wife is in the same vein as colleen howe maybe um oh i know don't 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 go don't go there (laughs) (laughs) um well, well, Colleen I, was 
sometimes a little too energetic in protecting Gordy, I think, financially. And um, some instances I've seen firsthand, uh, I, I would not want Colleen looking after my interests in that way. But back to the entrepreneurial side, I mean, you obviously had an instinct. I mean, you're modest about it, and obviously your wife had a big impact in it. But somewhere along the line, I mean, we are currently in an age of what they call like the side hustle. Everybody's doing something on the side. I mean, was that the case when you were coming up? It it would seem that you had a great job and you wouldn't need to, to have all these ventures, but you did. So that's what I'm trying to get to the roots of. Well, you know, if you think of a great job as 20, 20 grand a year, um, <laughs> you know, I used to think the truck drivers driving the 401 made more money than I did. So I said, well, if, if I have the freedom to start my own company and sell my services back to Hockey Night in Canada, which I did, and that's why I would produce these little intermission segments, uh, Johnny Bauer, Halloween Night, um, the Clear the Track thing. Oh, there's so many. Oh, going up in the clock. I see that on my computer from time to time. Paul Morris and I ascending from the ice up into the clock at Maple Leaf Gardens and doing a little feature on that. Those were all my productions. But I was probably making a hundred bucks and and hiring a cameraman and spending the time and and you know just delivering the finished product. So it wasn't very lucrative. So I found out well I could write a book then and. And that wasn't very lucrative either because uh, there weren't very many advances back then over a couple of hundred bucks. When when one writer told me he was going to do a Gordy Howe, Colleen Howe book, the advance was $200,000. And McGregor. he was going to be the, the ghostwriter. But when he found out that Colleen had changed the contract from 60-40 to 65-35, he told them to shove it and get somebody else to write the book. And I said, oh my God, that's gutsy. That is really gutsy. I I think the average guy would say, oh, for, for whatever percentage I get as the ghostwriter, it would probably, <laughs> probably keep my mouth shut and just do the job. Um, so those opportunities come along, and, and I took advantage of them. I was able to sell myself to Scotiabank. I, I had one venture that was uh, costly, a lacrosse team. I raised my hat at a beanie and suddenly owned a pro lacrosse team, the Montreal Canadiens, and uh, went to Montreal for that one summer. And uh, John Ferguson saved my skin down there by acting as my general manager and coach and and we we survived. Uh, the league didn't survive, but we got through our summer and were quite satisfied that we made the playoffs and almost won the title. And it was an adventure in a pro sport that I wouldn't have had any at any other time in my life. We would have been talking, uh, instead of the $5,000 that we put aside to get the, our part started, it would have been 500000 or $5 million by then. So... Um, it was an adventure. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I I, I just looked in, in, in again at the I, I think about the the modern era and 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 how much technology is advancing. And I was thinking, wow, like we might see like a, in the ages of cryptocurrency and NFTs, we might see a Peter Puck NFT 
from from Brian McFarland down the line. So, anyways, uh, I digress. I'm going to hand it over to Nate, who has a couple of more questions for you. I hope I'm not keeping you guys too long. Oh, oh no, it's a Sunday. We got all day. <laughs> uh, okay. I, w- I wanted to ask Brian, what led you to take up painting, and and how do, how is that sort of uh, you know feel you know kept you fulfilled uh, as you've you know explored a sort of a new a new uh, I guess medium I guess with art. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I have, I'm looking around my room. I have the first painting I ever did. I was 12 years old, I think. I'm looking at it. It's a plate with a loaf of bread on it, a wine bottle, and some fruit next to it. I, I was a high school student at, in Ottawa, and I went to Henri Massa, one of the best artists around, and I somehow heard that he taught kids how to paint. So I paid 50 cents each time I went to see him. And that's what turned out the very first day I met him, and it's still in a frame up there, and it looks damn good for 12 years old. So I was also on the school football team, and painting lessons were Wednesday afternoon, and I went, and on the next day, Thursday, the coach said, where the hell were you yesterday, McFarlane? You missed practice. I said, I was at art lessons, 50 cents, I'm taking art. Well, we don't want any artists on our team. So I said, oh, gee, I really like playing football, and gee, they're cheerleaders and you get the crowd comes out for the game on Friday. And so I gave up art for 50 years and I'm still mad at that man. Uh, He deterred me from a love of art that I postponed for all those decades. Now I'm back at it full time. I've got uh, 10, 20, 30, 50. I've got 60 paintings right at my hands here. I've got another 60 out in the other part of the condo. I've got 100 paintings out in the country. I sold 14 one month a couple of months ago at one day. I I don't advertise. I don't go to shows. Oh, I do have a show in Uxbridge. They they just sold one the other day nice. at the um, the yeah, the gallery in in Uxbridge. There's only one if you want to go in there. So. <laughs> um, there, a lot of them are pond hockey art because they seem to sell. Uh, people uh, reflect on their days as a child on the pond and skating and stick handling and that sort of thing. So I try to devise a, a nice setting for the pond. I make about, I don't go from photos or anything, just make it up in my mind. And I do big ones and little ones because some people are pressed for space now in these modern days with small apartments. Um, I try to charge a reasonable amount, not not too much, because next door to me in the country, I had neighbors named the Doigs, and Peter Doig was a hockey guy. From He was going to school overseas in London, and we bonded one day at the rink before Christmas. We had a little party and a game of shinny, and I liked this guy. He was a good player, and the two of us really were, you know, wing to wing and the buck, and 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 it was a great after I learned I didn't learn till years later. Peter Doig is a world renowned artist. Last week somebody sent me a note, he sold at auction as painting thirty four million dollars. <laughs> Can you believe that? Another twenty six million, eight million. Uh, he he's he lives in Trinidad and he He's a hockey guy still. He he went to the Montreal training um, um, dressing room to meet some of the players. And P.K. Subban came over and said, 
Mr. Doig, I always wanted to be an artist, but I, I couldn't afford to be. I, they paid me so much money to play hockey, I could never take up painting. <laughs> so uh, he told stories like that. Um, but isn't it interesting? You meet a guy like that, and uh, he's, he's your next-door neighbor, and you think you're an artist? And this guy is world renowned. <laughs> yeah, and I want you know, your sense, bringing your sensitivities as the ho- a hockey guy and as an artist. Uh, I, I was struck when you talked about when you got into covering the NHL. You could tell players, you know, by their haircut or their, you know, if a guy had a bald spot. Now I watch it, and it's like they all seem kind of interchangeable. They even all wear the hel- same helmet. I was wondering, bringing that hockey guy and that art- artist eye for things. Maybe, what what ways do you think maybe the NHL can make the players look a little more distinct on the ice or? Maybe make the fan, make them more relatable to the to new fans. Yeah, I, I had a little difficulty hearing all that, but you were, we're talking about art and hockey, and um, there are some splendid. There's a guy named Harris, those great hockey players, and and the former goalie John, not uh, Richard Brodeur. Remember the goalie with Vancouver was such a mm-hmm. great player in the playoffs years ago. He's an established artist out on the West Coast, and he does little bouncy players in the backyard rink playing. And uh, it's still, he's a delightful uh, artist, and I hope he's doing really well. Um, you know, there's so you, we were talking about bringing skills and talent out, and uh, so many of us say, "Well, I could never do that," but you give them a a paintbrush, give them a microphone. Some of them can be really good stand-up comics. <laughs> Others can be really good artists or singers or whatever. And there's a lot of hidden talent. Yeah, and uh, most of us have something we do rather well. Well, you know, my final question to you before I uh, get you to um, graciously read a passage from your book is to ask you basically what I asked you at the beginning of the book uh, you know, you had a reluctance to write this book. Michael Holmes convinced you to do it. Did it? Did you feel you? You know, did it feel good to clear the air on your relations with Eddie Shack and Bobby Hall and your time at HN in your time at Hockey Night in Canada? Did it feel good to kind of finally address that from a first-person perspective? Yeah, I think it did. Uh, I think when you get to be ninety, you 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 just maybe you're a little insensitive to, but. But I felt the if you're going to write a book and somebody's going to pay 25 bucks for it, you want them to be walk away with something that they said. I I really liked what he said about Bobby Hull, or I agree with him here, or whatever. Uh, I either enjoyed the book, but I got something from it, you know. Right. And so it's easy just to do these same old short stories about hockey and. And, and yet I keep looking for something that I personally would be interested in or I think my wife would enjoy reading or my kids. And, um, yeah, I was really sensitive about Bobby Hull because we're very good friends with Gary and Lois Hull, his, his, young, his brother and sister-in-law. And uh, even Dennis Hull is a neighbor out in the country place nearby. Um, but Bobby never shows up at family reunions. Bobby's had a checkered career. And really, I feel badly for really classy guys on the Chicago Blackhawks. If Bobby Hull is taking their role as an ambassador, I don't think that's fair. I think they should maybe just say, Bobby, it's time for you to retire. 
we've got two or three guys here we can fill they've got more energy than you they've got perhaps he, they wouldn't tell him this but a better reputation and um make the change mr mcfarland uh, i want to thank you for your time uh today uh speaking with myself and nate uh here for sports lit podcast i want to close out by allowing you to close out uh with a poem this is called give me old time hockey Give me old-time hockey, the original six. CCM tacks and wooden sticks. Give me $3 tickets for an NHL tilt. In those old-time arenas, the best ever built. Parking on the street, a brisk walk to the rink. Ten cents for a hot dog, ten cents for a drink. We knew all the players, from the subs to the aces, no helmets, no visors hiding their faces. There's Johnny Bauer stopping pucks with his chin. He just stopped the rocket from putting one in. The rocket and Gordy were the best of the lot, and Belleville the classiest, at least that's what I thought. Bring back Dave Keon, Tim Horton, and Bond. They were my heroes. Where have they gone? Boom Boom and Shacky in the Golden Jet, providing thrills one can never forget. Bring back the Hewitts, Danny Gallivan, too. Hockey night legends we all listen to. Bring back games of shinny played on pond and street. Hurly burly action, froses, noses, and feet. Hand me down skates, sticks worn thin at the blade. Pucks lost in snowbanks. Memories that never fade. Wind stinging our eyes, frost frozen faces. Fingers so numb you can't tie your laces. Endless games of shinny played at 30 below. Shovels at rinkside to scrape off the snow. Tattered old sweaters, toques on our heads. Picking sides, you're blue, we're reds. Dozens of kids on similar rinks all over town. Yelping and laughing and having fun, whooping it up until the sun goes down. That's where it all began for me, my love for the game. Stop and Tom immortalized it as the best game you can name. It's a lovely game of speed and skill and the crunch of body contact. And while I long for old-time hockey, I know it won't come back. So raise your glasses and a toast as we gather here together to the joy of old-time hockey. It's gone forever. Thank you, Mr. McFarland. Thank you for reading there, that. I've got you back now. Yep, that was that was great. Thank you for uh, taking the time to read that and, uh, and speak with us today about your book, uh, which came out last month. And um, I know me and Nate enjoyed reading it, and uh, we enjoyed it even more that you uh, took the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you for giving me that time. I tend to be a lot wordier than I should be, and uh, I appreciate you being good listeners. <laughs> and I wish you both the best of luck. Absolutely. You know what? Uh, that's the that's the great part about a podcast. You know, you don't have to go to commercial. Yes. All the all the best to you from myself and Nate's. Just going to say bye to. Yeah. Best of luck with uh, everything there, Brian. Sounds like you're keeping busy. <laughs> Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Yes, for, for sure. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.